Picture this. The journey ahead starts here together, and together we can build a brighter future. You are listening to Illuminating Hope, a podcast of Hope House. Welcome to Illuminating Hope, a podcast of Hope House. My name is Tina Johnson. I am here with my co-host, Marianne Matheny, CEO of Hope House. And today we want to warmly welcome Dr. Tracy Johnson. Dr. Tracy Johnson was born and raised in rural Texas, and her skill as a left fielder earned her a softball scholarship to Prairie View A&M University outside of Houston. She attended MPC Heyman College of Medicine in Philadelphia, now Drexel University College of Medicine, due to its rich history of paving the way for women in medicine and women of color. She entered residency at the vivacious Washington University in St. Louis, where she was honored to serve as Administrative Chief Resident. After repaying her service as a National Health Service Corp Scholar at a rural, federally qualified health center, she slowly migrated to the private practice sector of Kansas City, but felt the pull of academics where she felt most impactful. At University Health, she oversaw a busy labor and delivery unit as the director of L&D while serving as associate program director for the OBGYN residency program. Her passion, however, is her work in the population health equality and special communities. She serves as a leader in Missouri's Hospital Association for Perinatal Quality Review Board overseeing efforts to decrease maternal and infant mortality in the state. She was also appointed as a member of the Pregnancy Association Mortality Review Board in Jefferson City, reviewing all pregnancy-related deaths in Missouri. She was recently elected chair-elect of this prestigious board and will focus the next two years on health equality. She recently completed a lifelong dream of subspecialty training in maternal medicine at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and will return to academics this summer. When she's not doing all this, you'll see her and her husband cheering their two sons and daughter emphatically at soccer games or gymnastics. Welcome, Dr. Johnson, to our podcast. We're so thankful you're here. Thank you. I was talking to Elaine, which is one of our board members, and she told me that you love to talk about trauma-informed care. And trauma is caused by a number of behaviors, emotional, physical. And I also want to know, in your words, what is trauma and what effects physically does trauma have on our brains and on our body? That's a really good question. Trauma in general is, I'll start with a statistic. There's a statistic that says that 70% of people have experienced trauma, but 30% to 70% are affected by it. So I think that trauma has a lot of different ways that it can present and a lot of different ways that it shows up in people's lives. It can be something as simple as a health-related trauma, like you had a heart attack that was unexpected. That can be traumatic for someone. Or someone's sister can have had a car accident and even though it didn't necessarily apply to them, the trauma of having a a loved one in an event, even if the sister was not injured, can cause trauma. So I think it's basically, if I'm making up a definition on the spot, I would say that it is an event that occurs in related to you or someone that you care about that actually doesn't even have to be someone you care about. Related to you and your life that can have long-lasting effects on your mental health and your medical health. Right, because I think you can experience 
experienced trauma from something happening in the community, in your world. That, like 9-11. Like 9-11. That's what I was thinking about when you were talking, that even though I didn't live, I mean, I wasn't there when that happened, that obviously had an impact. Now, how it impacted me, very different than how it impacted the people it was happening to who lived in in New York or wherever one of the other attacks was. Another great example that is uh, often quoted in the black community is post-traumatic slave mm-hmm. disorder. I was in, in no way enslaved. Three, four generations back were not enslaved, but my grandmother was a sharecropper. And so she actually passed down a lot of things which people will package together in something like post-traumatic slave syndrome, which I see in my children in a way that I rear my family, that I had no idea what that looked like until someone else told me where that comes from. And so that's something that's 400 years old and I was not there for all the things that happened back before 1865. Mm -hmm. But that's trauma and we see that in lots of different communities. That is really interesting actually. Yeah, Yeah. I'd never heard of that before. So to bring awareness to that type of trauma is why we're here. Talk to me a little bit about the trauma that your culture has undergone or any aspects of what the black community today is undergoing in your own words. Thank you for that. So first and foremost it's hard in America. I was just talking to one of my partners, Dr. Mundy, and he was talking about how it's really difficult for us to practice population health improvements when we do, in medicine, treat people as a monolith, right? So black is not black is not black, but right now that's where we are in our country. So black people that are from the African diaspora, what that means to us is that their descendants, their ancestors came over on the boat in the slave trade, not intentionally, not by choice, back 400, 600 years ago. So when those things happened, the ancestors that came from them are the people who are here now that call themselves black from the African diaspora. That is not the person that is from East Africa that has come two generations ago. That is the people who we, when you ask us where we're from, traditional Caucasian American who's not been adopted says, my family's Irish, Jewish, and German. Many black people cannot say that. We might be able to get one country out because we've done 23andMe, but we can't, (laughs) we don't really know if that's true or not. I am from the African diaspora, so I cannot tell you any country, that would be me, right? So the African diaspora, most people have passed on lots of different things. The best example that I've been quoted and I've read about myself is what I do with my daughter. So the way I explain this to people, and again, we're not a monolith, I'm not saying all black people, but I'm saying a lot of us, a lot of people I know, a lot of people that they know, we treat our daughters differently than we treat our sons. And the mothers treat their daughters differently than we treat their sons as part of this package of what we describe as post-traumatic slave syndrome is when our girls are upset, we freak frequently tell them not to show tears or cry because that was weakness and when you were weak back when you were enslaved bad things happened to you things to your body your children were taken you were manipulated you were harmed for boys we don't want them to cry either frequently but we are more coddling to them what we believe is because there's not a long time that you know you're going to be with them and they will be taken away so we see them as this patriarch in our communities and we treat our sons a little bit differently because we know that life is going to be harder for them so we coddle them a little bit more Again, not a monolith, but frequently with our girls, they have to be strong. We cannot show them any weakness whatsoever. They cannot ever show that they break. And I've even seen that with my daughter. And I, I've grown up with my both of my parents. Like, I've been loved. I love my daughter, but I frequently pass that on, and that was passed on through me. I've talked to my cousins about it. We all were told, you do not ever show that you're crying. And so now, modern time, we call that superwoman syndrome with black women that never show that they're weak or crying. It's hard. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about how, okay, it started 400, 600 years ago, but the things that are happening even now 
really replicate a lot of the things that were happening then. So it makes sense to me that those traditions or those feelings, those strategies that you're using makes perfect sense because things haven't, they've changed some, but there's still a lot of that that's in place that's still happening in our society and in our culture to you and to your family. I mean, yes, it happened four or 600 years ago. I can see why that hasn't changed. And what's fascinating is that we don't even know where it's coming from, but it's education, right? This is why education does improve so many different things because even myself with doing a lot of trauma-informed care work, I had no idea that I was passing it on because it's just been passed on to me. And culturally in my family, it's pretty homogenous. Most of the people in my family are black. And so I didn't have other influences from other cultures in my nuclear family that said, hey, you know, maybe we do this a little bit differently, that a little bit differently. It's pretty homogenous with most people from that. We don't have anybody that's an immigrant from Africa in my family. And so for that reason, I'm passing on the same thing that's been passed on to me that we don't even know why we're doing it. But when you go and get more education about it, you realize, oh goodness, I don't show fear. I try really hard not to show fear. I do get pretty upset when someone tries to tell me what to do. And that comes from a lot of different places. But just with the African diaspora alone, you see this very frequently in our community. Do you think this is a form of adultification? What a young black girl would go into the ER and they're treated as if they're an adult and should really know what's going on with their body and know what's happening to them for whatever reason. Do you think that's still going on today? It does. The other thing that's interesting we see in young girls too is we frequently, again, I'm going to repeat over and over again that we are not a monolith, but very frequently we uh, go into puberty just a little bit earlier. A typical person develops breasts, you know, 11 to 12. We might be 9, 10, 11. And so frequently now you've got people coming up to them, talking to them like they're more mature. They have no idea why you're talking to them that way. They cannot help how their body is and that is beautiful. I will say it again but for some reason I'm even feeling this with my daughter right now is she is just starting to you know have a little bit of change in her body and people are talking to her like she's 13 14 and she's eight and so I'm seeing it even in my own family I received that when I was young had no idea what that's happening you see that when girls are playing sports people are talking to them like they're older than they are and it's really hard it's hard it's definitely a cultural difference for sure so tell me in your words what does trauma do to the brain and your physical body? So many things. So first and foremost, I think it's Bruce McEwen, M-C-E-W-E-N, did some wonderful research where basically looked at the way your body responds in in relation to trauma and looked at, I think, four different uh, options. So normally what happens when there's an inciting event is your body should increase with the fight or flight that we always talk about, which is where your epinephrine, your cortisol, all these hormones go up. And then systematically and strategically, they should come down so that you're not always feeling like you're running from a bear. Then, you know, your body feels better and you kind of go back to resting state. In response to chronic trauma, your body can do a couple of different things. One, it can rev up and never decrease back down so you're constantly feeling like you're fight or flight. It can, uh, after time of uh, being in that state, it can come down and not respond with a new trauma. It can be so fluctuant, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, that it kicks off a lot of other unnecessary 
responses in other uh, systems of your body, like an overreaction to your inflammatory and immune system, so that you end up with things like lupus and other autoimmune disorders, because your body is constantly reacting to different things that it's triggered inappropriately, and it can inappropriately decline at the wrong time, so misfires. So all these different things can happen all the time. When you're exposed to trauma, you could have just one incident that happens, but your brain cognitively doesn't necessarily respond. It's almost like it's jolted, zapped, if you will, so it's not processing in the way that it should, or it can kick off all these other systems, all these other different pathways that make it so that now you get cancer earlier, breast cancer, it's more aggressive, it's inability, it's uh, unable to treat, or one little thing happens and it knocks you off because your body doesn't necessarily respond appropriately, which is what we see with sepsis frequently, right? Mm-hmm. You get one bacteria that antibiotics should be able to help, knocks you off, takes you out, seven hours later, you're gone. This doesn't make sense, but constantly if your body's in a fight or flight, or inappropriately responding, it makes it easier for things like this to happen. This is what we call weathering, which was one of the caveats made famous by uh, Dr. Arlene Geronimus out of uh, West Coast. She's has a lot of research on this and why black women and birthing people have small inciting events that make their morbidity and mortality so much higher. When you say constant trauma, I know there's a fight or flight, and you gave the analogy uh, when you see a bear. Okay, so that bear comes home every single night. So that's your constant trauma. Okay, so that's one example. That happens with our domestic violence survivors. So tell me, what have you witnessed? I, and I know there's HIPAA laws and all of that, so we really can't be specific, nor would I expect you to do that at all. But throughout your um, medical residency or any time within your medical career, what kinds of things have you witnessed? And you said, yeah, this is domestic violence, or somebody's come to you and said, I'm in a domestic violence relationship. What types of things have you witnessed within their pregnancies or their whole person? Interestingly, they it presents itself in lots of different ways. Probably one of the more common ways is patients present and they're pregnant and they're coming for subtle complaints that have nothing to do with what we see objectively. So they have toe pain, they have ear pain, they have cramping, they have headaches, nausea, vomiting out of proportion, Things that we can't quite work up and rule out bad things. Headache is a great example. You can tell me you have a headache all day, and I'll believe you, but then I can't do a test that tells me that your headache is gone. So I can do a workup. I can give you IV fluids. I can give you pain medication like Tylenol. I can make sure you don't have a mass if it's very severe. Make sure there's nothing else causing it like medication. But for some reason, when you present with things like that, if we really have a trauma-informed care mindset, I can make sure there's not something else, what we call in medicine psychosomatism, which is something else is causing you to have this symptom that is not objectively a medical disorder that is treatable with a medication or an intervention. So classically, we'll have patients come in, they have a headache, we treat them, work them up, and then they come back, oh, the headache's back. We treat them, work them up, and we do a little bit more digging, a little bit more digging. Maybe now they feel a little bit more comfortable. Now maybe you hear, oh, this has happened, this has happened. Or maybe you see an interaction, which may give you pause. We screen them, but they have to feel comfortable telling us. And so frequently, this has been in my career, common, a subtle chief complaint that just makes you go, 
have you been hit? Is someone, you know, verbally abusing you? Are you stressed? Are you worried about something? And sometimes we can just come up with the right question package that makes them feel like they're able to disclose. The classic example of a patient coming in status post assault is not as common, especially in COVID. People hit it so well. Everyone was so isolated. As you see yeah. in Kansas City, they said domestic violence or intimate partner violence was up 40 to 60% in some parts of the pandemic. So it was hidden a lot. People were not supposed to come out. When they did, they were masked and kind of in and out. So we missed a lot of cases, a lot of intervention that we could have provided during pandemic. Now, I feel like people are talking more about it, but the fear of someone taking your child is so great. The fear of retribution is so great that that it's hard to get patients to partner with us because the distrust I love social work, but the distrust in the system mm-hmm. is pretty consistent. So much so that we've even talked about maybe calling social work something different, <laughs> <laughs> just repackaging it because they feel like it's an invasion on their home and an attack on whether they're a good mother or not. I'm curious, you were talking about how you screen and if, if you're talking to people gaining their trust. Have you seen that piece change over time? I've been doing this work for a long time. When I first started, that none of that was happening. There wasn't any kind of screening happening. There wasn't any kind of separating out. So you had the the patient by themselves. It was all very trauma-informed care. wasn't even a thing back sure. when I started. Sure. So, so we've seen a lot of that change. Do you remember what it was like? Or maybe it's always been this way. No. So can you talk about that from, from your perspective as a medical provider? I do. I've been doing this since 2009. And then we would ask patients, but it wasn't embedded in our everyday. So it was when there was a trigger. Very similar to urine drug screens. Not that they're the same thing, but we would only do it if people were acting funny. Then we'd ask them about whether they were using substances. Domestic violence and partner violence was the same. So it was like, if she came in status post trauma, crying that she was upset that someone was hurting her, threatening her, then we would go into it. We'd ask them very simply, oh, do you feel supported in your relationship? And as long as the question was okay, we wouldn't really ask again a lot. There were validated tools then for screening for intimate partner violence, but they weren't embedded in our everyday, at least in the, the different hospital systems that I worked in. Now, I feel like it is embedded. It's mandated by our uh, governing bodies in medicine, American College of OBGYNs, the Certified uh, Nurse Midwife Group, the AFP, which is Family Practice, uh, Maternal Fetal Medicine, which are the high-risk doc. All these groups say you need to be screening regularly. I still don't think that we've gotten it down pat. There's lots of different ways people would recommend that we do so. I think some of the most successful ways are the ways that are multi-pronged, which is you ask at the beginning verbally, but then you also check indirectly. Are you stressed about anything in particular rather than coming right out and saying, is he, is she or he hurting you verbally, physically? There's different validated tools. And I think those multi-pronged approaches very systematically and regularly are the most successful. And that's what I was thinking too, because just because they've come in, even if they're in, this is happening to them, they don't necessarily know you. They don't have a relationship with you or the nurse or whoever's talking with them. And so they're not necessarily just going to open up and say, oh yes, my you know my partner's beating me, and oftentimes 
sometimes what we've also experienced is that people don't call it that. It's That's happening exactly to right. them, but they don't call it that. And they're like, oh, no, that I'm not a victim of violence. Oh, no, you know, they've never been hit or nothing physical has happened. So really, it's like, you know, this is what's happening to you. And this we do call that intimate violence or domestic violence. So I think that and makes it, sense. And it has something to do with the manipulation part of it. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you required to have sexual favors or behave a certain way in order to have your bills paid? Is there any threat to taking the children or not having food or money or, or housing? It looks so many different ways. And also, it sneaks up on people so much, right? They, they feel like something's not quite right, but they haven't been hit. So then they go, well, it's, it's not like what I see on that movie with J-Lo. The movie with J-Lo, she had a black eye. She went in and everybody knew it. Right. So that's what I've seen, the subtleties of intimate partner violence. And then now, you know, having couples from the LGBTQ community is something that we're all learning about. We're happy to have out in the open. It isn't always a man. Sometimes when we have a, a person that's pregnant and a woman, it might be another person that's a woman or someone non-binary. So it just looks so different. All of it is possible, but we have to open our eyes in order to see it. And if we don't, we miss it. And also, from your perspective of working with people who are just coming through with being pregnant, just starting, pregnancy is often a time when, when the abuse goes to that next level. True. And so you probably, I would imagine, have seen where it starts it out it's just been it hasn't moved into the physical yet and then when the pregnancy happens that's when we see that starting so I think I don't know if you have anything any experiences with that you're absolutely correct we see it early on when the person first finds out that they're pregnant sometimes it's because they uh, did not want the pregnancy sometimes it's because the pregnancy shifts their relationship in a way that wasn't expected sometimes it's because one or both of the people have other relationships that it's now being forced to reconcile like which in which relationship is more important to me right now sometimes it's a act it's viewed as an act of manipulation by one or both parties it could be the pregnant person it could be the the partner and then again one size doesn't fit all sometimes it escalates over the course of the pregnancy but frequently it escalates around delivery or shortly thereafter mm-hmm. delivery as you talked about with the pregnancy associated mortality review board we see a huge uptick in, in Missouri in homicides which scares the bejesus out of me and there's lots of reasons why that's occurring and we're missing it. We're missing it as a state and probably as a country. I haven't looked at the national data on um, homicides. I don't know that it's been released. I don't think I saw it recently. But in Missouri, it definitely increased. Can you talk about that, that um, the review board and kind of what that process was? Yes, yeah, so Missouri is interesting. I, I love the state that I live in, even though our outcomes are less than ideal. The Pregnancy Associated Mortality Review Board was put in inception years ago, but then through the state received funding and all this kind of very official things that happened. Uh, and we started in 2017 kind of revamping our board. Um, I've had the honor of serving on that uh, committee since 2017. And and now or was voted in as chair-elect uh, two years ago, and in January I'll take the helm as a chair of that board. It's a labor of love because it's really, really difficult to see the moms and birthing people who lost their life either during pregnancy or within 365 days post-pregnancy over the last five years, but we're giving their life voice hopefully that it doesn't happen again for other women so we meet about every four to six weeks and we review every single death that occurs in missouri or if they got care in missouri i think we'll review if they pass away outside they so we're usually around 
60 to 70 deliveries, although in the last couple of years, our numbers are increasing drastically. The last report came out about six weeks ago, and our numbers are, our outcomes are different than they were. Um, we are doing better as a state in Missouri than we were before. Dr. Karen Florio is a very close friend of mine, and she's the current chair of the board. Uh, she makes this wonderful saying that Missouri is going to go from worst to first, and we're, we're working on it really hard. So I looked at some of the demographic of the unfairly or unequal outcomes, and a lot of it looks socioeconomic. It was 3.3 times higher for those who only had a high school education or GED, and I'm talking about fatality. It was two and a half times higher for those on Medicaid, a staggering three times higher for black women. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? I do. So interestingly enough, when we look at the number one cause, maybe four years ago, it was cardiovascular, hypertension, things like that. Now our cause is number one is mental health, and that includes a lot of different things. The fanfare is going to say it's substance use disorder. It's not all substance use disorder. A significant amount is actually mental health uh, related to suicide, depression, anxiety, things like that. So there's a lot of confounding there. When we talk about disparities in particular, a lot of the reasons overall that Medicaid and those that don't have higher education are suffering from is access. Access, understanding, mm-hmm. and I, I dare say it, bias. Meaning that we were not screening for IPV appropriately, so our homicides are up. Uh, we're not screening for depression and anxiety appropriately. And when we do, because it wasn't always, when we do, and it's positive screen, we don't follow up the way we should. And I am down on, on record and tell you I don't believe it's because those providers got up that day and said that they weren't going to do the right thing. I think that they, one, didn't necessarily know, or they didn't have the resources, or they attempted, and the patient wasn't able to get in because of access. I think all of the above are possible, and we saw that in our data. As for black women, it's all of the above. We see that black women present frequently with the same complaints in different places. I, with Dr. Florio and others on our board, am interested in looking at any data we can call that says, why are they bouncing and what's happening when they're bouncing? Because that's a clear sign of disparity when you feel like you have to go to a different hospital system, right? When you trust the, the care that you got, you go back to that place. When you don't, sometimes it's because of convenience. You happen to be on the other side of town when something happens. Frequently, it's because of lack of trust. So why is that happening? And why is that happening frequently with black women? The information that I'm telling you now about the balancing from hospital to hospital is anecdotal, but I want to look at it and see because I feel like it's happening a ton. And I even see it in my own practice. They come to us at University Health and say, well, I they told me this, but I just want to hear what you guys say. I'm all for the second opinion. I believe in it. But where is the disconnect that that's having to happen so often? National data about four or five years ago actually said that the people who passed away when they were black, presented five times before they died, five times with the same symptoms. So what is happening that they're not listening the first, second, third time? Why not just do the workup and prove it? It's, and those are largely cardiovascular disease, hypertensive disorders, things like that. Why are you having to present five times for the same thing? And that happened to Shalon Irving, who's the physician and, uh, oh, epidemiologist, not physician, epidemiologist out of the CDC that lost her life after a PE. She presented five times and she died. So is this information coming from hospitals, coming from private practice 
instructors? Or Everyone. All, all, so everybody just submits their data? How does that work? State mandated. They go and okay. they retrieve the data. It's HIPAA, okay. pro- HIPAA protected, so we never know where these patients necessarily passed away. We have it packaged together over years so that it's de-identifiable. Mm-hmm. So I know that four people may have passed away in Kansas City over a five-year period, but I don't know that they may have passed away six months ago. Okay. It's, it's always two years late, so that's an example, but right. I don't ever know which hospital and where this specific one happened because they package it over about you know two three years time so that it's de-identified to protect the family and absolutely I think that's very important mm-hmm. I think the other thing I found extremely interesting and, and maybe this has just always been and I just didn't know it but looking beyond the pregnancy and delivery itself into the year after have you always looked at that or is that a new that's a Peace. great question. So WHO, the World Health Organization, they look at 42 days post. We look at 364. A couple of other countries look at 365, 364 days as well. And that's because so much happens and right. many of them are dying. And it is 100% related to pregnancy. Right. Not always, right. but a lot of times it is related mm-hmm. to, to pregnancy. Cardiovascular disease frequently happens post-delivery. The time in the pregnancy when you have the most stress on the heart is shortly there after pushing and delivering and also while pushing and delivering. So there's a misnomer that people always think it's, you know, on TV when you see some movie. Mm -hmm. Someone loses their life, they're pushing, and they pass out, and then they say, oh, this is so sad. That's not the most frequent time. It's usually as your body's recovering, trying to figure out what to do with all that fluid that you put on, all the volume you put on your your heart and your body to carry another life, right? This is what we're doing, carrying a whole other person. A whole other person. And then when the person's out of our body, then you have to figure out what to do with all that volume. So that 24, 48 hours post-delivery is one of the most dangerous times. And then mobilizing all that within a couple weeks, six weeks after is when a lot of the deaths occur. And has the change, or maybe there hasn't been a change, but and how much is covered like by insurance? Mm. Um, Are people coming back for the follow-ups like they need to, or is that some of the access that you're talking about part of that? Great question. So it's multifactorial. Number one, as a physician, I'm sure it sounds like I'm putting a lot of it at the physician and the hospital's feet, and it's not. It's all of it. So number one, uh, Missouri just passed extension of Medicaid uh, for a year. Right. I mean, just. Just, right? just happened. So the data yeah. that you are reviewing right now, that's from 2020, 2021. That, that wasn't the case. So one, it is access. Two, it's understanding on the part of the provider and the patient that that's necessary, right? Your mom, your grandmother, they didn't go back to a postpartum visit. They went next door. Something, their mom told them what to do. They didn't know. The baby's out. You're good. Uh, so postpartum exams, we call it the fourth trimester, is crucial, not just for medical health. Again, mental health is medical health, but all of the things, right? Acclimating to a new baby, everything that that entails. So part of it is the patient knowing that that's important. But not just that, the patient understanding the signs and symptoms of problems, right? So we have to educate, they have to educate themselves as well. Two, the clinician has to have space for that patient to come in. A situation set up for the safety net if they can't, right? So this is where we use things like community health workers. We use things like doulas, virtual, all these things, wraparound services that when you come in with your baby in a week for a well child check and see if they're breastfeeding appropriately, why can't we check the mom at the same time? Our systems have not advanced around the state and around the country fast enough to accommodate that. It wasn't largely covered up until three months ago. Mm-hmm. And so we're not we're not ready for it. We're not setting it up right now. So I think all of it is at play. And then there are just some times where the moms are sick and they don't come in fast enough. 
but that's pretty rare on our panel board. A lot of times they've come in a couple times. And then lastly, some of these women were not in care, so that's a big problem, right? right? They had no prenatal care. Where are they? How do I get to you? And I haven't been able to find a paradigm that works. It keeps me up at night, I'll tell you, because when they're pregnant or postpartum, we don't know how to get them into us. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Because they haven't disclosed that they're pregnant. They haven't disclosed that. And frequently they know when we look back at the cases, our abstractor adjudicator, they know that they're pregnant somehow it's on Facebook or they've disclosed to the partner. People know, but they're not in care. So how do I reach that person? If you know, please let me know. I think that you're talking, too, about a group of people then that we would potentially come into contact with because it's not uncommon for when there's an abusive situation for the partner to not allow them to go access care. Because if you expand, I mean, isolation is a huge piece of what happens in a domestic violence relationship. So if you're isolated and you're pregnant, then getting the care that you or your child needs. We're not right. going to access your That's, records no, at all. No, it's right. prote- Which it should be protected, but right. there should be some way for us to also partner with you. Right. Is that me coming to you? Is it you calling us? How do we keep that patient safe? And we've even had issues like that clinically outside of the PAMRA report where we know the person's at a domestic violence or IPV shelter, but we got to wait for them to contact us. It's hard. I hope that there's ways that we could address that if or not already I think our hospital-based advocacy program has helped a little bit okay at least with connecting the hospital personnel with our program so we have an advocate University Health Lakewood is one of our hospitals since we're out in eastern Jackson County so at least those doors are open we may not be where we need to be mm-hmm. but at least I think that at least the doors open can help with that awesome. but I definitely think that that's something I mean the, the confidentiality vines that we have I mean it's those are we have no choice in that they're appropriate and they are appropriate but they also cause difficulties at the same time and so we have to find workarounds with that but I think that's fascinating and I think we need to talk more about that I agree. And and we also have that barrier of does a survivor want that help? Right. True. Because we, you know, we let our survivors make their own decisions. We meet them where they're at. Mm -hmm. And we can encourage, of course, but we can't say, hey, you need to go get medical treatment. Mm -hmm. So we are bound by the survivor and and where the survivor's at, too. Mm -hmm. I think it also depends on where we see them. You know, if they're coming into our shelter program, we're going to have more access to them and more time to talk with them and to open up ideas or suggestions around resources and, mm-hmm. and things. But if we're just seeing them in a in the courtroom and we only have that one small amount of time with them, we may not get to that mm-hmm. with them. So it really is about how much access and time we have with them. Yeah, often we only get one right. touch, one or right. two touches, and that's it, unless they come into our shelter. But we, are, we really are about looking at the system and looking at yes. how we can play a part in improving the system so having the knowledge and having this conversation opens up those ideas for me like okay this is a part of the system that we need to see what we can do mm-hmm. to try to address that I love that you brought this up because it is part of the system we need to address I do want to go back to the report and touch on one more thing the fatal injuries of all pregnancies okay so the third cause is homicide which are all 100% preventable of course and it looks like in these cases In half of these cases, the records obtained indicate a history of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Now, I say the records obtained indicate a history. So I feel pretty confident to say not all of the victims who passed in these homicides actually had a record 
of domestic violence. Talk to me about that a little bit. I, I mean, I think you said it so eloquently. I don't know that there's so much more that I need to say about that because truly I knew exactly where you were going. It's That is of the records obtained. That is, we know that IPV is so underreported, and even in that, 50% had a history. I will tell you, I don't think it's inappropriate for me to disclose that frequently what we see is the in that report, half of the people, it was a person that they did not know, right? Sometimes it is, you are a passerby. And so I find that fascinating, as sad as it is, because even though you may not currently be in a situation where you have intimate partner violence, you're in a situation that is unsafe to the point where you are a victim of homicide intentionally or unintentionally. So it goes to the trauma, right? Is even though you are not physically, actively being harmed, you're in a situation where your life has been taken during pregnancy intentionally or unintentionally, which is devastating. Because you would think, Dr. Johnson, the report's gonna say that they were a victim of homicide by their abuser. And that wasn't the case sometimes, but sometimes not, and they still lost their life. That's a community problem. That's an upstream problem. Valid point. Well, everything that we've discussed that you have brought up it is a community problem. I agree. I mean, it's not, it isn't for the medical profession to, to solve. It's, when you have lack of access to care, you have vulnerable people who aren't getting the care that they need. People are falling through the cracks. That is a community problem. And I, I've been on my soapbox so many times. Domestic violence is not a family problem. It is a community problem. And we as a community need to address it. And to me, the healthcare piece of that, I get on that as well, that to me, people should have access to healthcare, quality healthcare, regardless of the income that they have or the coverage that they have so I know people get you're on your little soapbox and I am because I just I can't in our country why is it that people in 2023 do not have access to care so can I just acknowledge something that I love right now I'm literally <laughs> fangirling you right now because I feel girl uh, every, every day every day you said some things that just resonate with me in my soul. And what you said is two things. When I do my equity work, people are always using words, and words matter, and they have value and purpose. And the things that you said that resonate so much to my soul is you called this population vulnerable, but you did not use any other triggering words. And what I love by that is I like to call this population vulnerable and also under-resourced. Because what that means is that it's not those people that didn't wake up that day. It's nothing that they did. There's not some standard on their head. It is a problem outside of them for why this is occurring. Vulnerable means that they're in a situation that they cannot help and under-resourced means that the problem is ours, meaning the system, and that if they had resources, we would not be in the situation. So fix the resource problem and we wouldn't be here. All the other words you used are so descriptive, but they don't in any way take away from the fact that it is not their fault and that if we did apply resources where they needed to be, this would go away. And I feel very strongly about that. That's why I'm fangirling. Okay. Well, I'm getting goosebumps over here. I, I mean, I totally agree, and it's the same. I've said it about domestic violence. If we as a community came together and said, this is unacceptable, we will not tolerate this in our community, domestic violence would stop. It would be done. If people were held accountable, not just in the courts, but by peers, and, and it was stopped before it began, we'd be having a whole different conversation. We would whole different conversation so which is one of the reasons going back to the access why 
expanding that Medicaid coverage through a year was so powerful and I don't think it I don't think it got enough attention in the in the media and and like we should be celebrating we should be thanking our legislators for making that happen because we go to them with all the things they aren't doing Mm -hmm. but let's talk about like they really were able to push that through and they were able to recognize because it comes back to and I'm I have one child so I went through the pregnancy I mean just one but I don't know that everyone considers pregnancy a health condition I mean which is so interesting Interesting. And, like, a, and a dangerous. And a dangerous. It's very one. dangerous. And it's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. We love babies. Absolutely. We love pregnancy, but boy, it'll take you out. <laughs> Ooh, it'll leave you different, it doesn't it? Will. It leaves you it, different. It will. Same I thing. was so cool before I was a mom. Oh, me I too. was so cool. <laughs> me too. I wouldn't change it for anything. I, my daughter is the best thing best thing we ever did. She but is man, great. Nobody talks about it being a health issue that's dangerous, that people lose their lives they because do. of that. And we don't talk about Maybe people wouldn't get pregnant if they really thought about it in that I way. Mean, I don't know. I mean, I do believe in it. But I'm just saying, like, it's a big deal. It is. I always tell my first time, moms after they've had a baby I go what were you doing with all the time before they go I just it's so different I'm like it is and we don't talk about it you know why shame and blame in America let me tell you what you better be an insta mom Instagram you better look the part you breastfed your baby every day you're up all night you're not sleeping your husband loves you your hair looks great your skin's popped back oh you're amazing you have a flat stomach you have a flat stomach two weeks out You didn't get a C-section because, oh, your body works, and it works well. Right. You better not have a complication because that's because you had too much Mountain Dew or you did too many M&Ms. Name and blame. It and if it that is. baby didn't turn out perfect, then either you didn't choose the right embryo in your IVF, you chose to wait too long or you had the baby too early, you didn't choose the right guy, you didn't choose the right doctor. Let me tell you, you know how many times I have somebody come up to me and go, I wanted you to be my doctor because I saw you on TV. Let me tell you, that's not what you need. You don't want the docs on TV. Half the time, the docs are on TV all the time. Damn, practice medicine forever. So they're like, oh, really? I'm like, no, you needed to look up some other stuff, sis. You Don't use that. Because we're Instagram hungry. Right. We want to look the part. Right. It's hard to be the part. It's really hard, and it's hard to be the part when it's not anything under your control. And we do not do well with control at all in America. When we say now, I'm supposed to be pregnant in six weeks, because now I I contraceptive my whole life, because I've had access since the 70s to contraception, right? My grandma didn't have it. She had 18 kids. I can choose who I want to marry and who I want to have a baby with. And when I want to. And when I want to have a baby. baby. So I, I, I choose. I choose now. So I better get pregnant in the next six weeks. Oh, pop the pregnancy test. Better be perfect. Let me go, let me go pick my perfect doctor, midwife. And then I'm going to choose. I'm going to already have daycare set out. It's going to be so good. The nursery. I, I got the nursery. I figured out what color we're going to pick. We're going to have our nice little baby shower. And oh, now I got depression. My partner's not being nice. My kid has a problem. I have a problem. You can't Facebook that. That's too real. Right. We can't show vulnerability. There's that word again. We can't do that because now it's my fault because where else is the fault going to lie? Right. Whose feet is the fault going to lie at? It can't be mine. It's got to be somebody's. So is it mine when you have a C-section? Frequently. They get mad at me. I go, healthy mom, healthy baby. We got to have expectations. Healthy mom, healthy baby. Is it dad's? Frequently. In a non-IPV situation. Oh, you got me pregnant. Well, you wanted to get pregnant. You came off your pill. Somebody's fault. Right. It's hard. It is. Instagram hurt us all. And I didn't think about that. Nobody prepares us. Nobody prepares My and mother's pretty strong, right? Um, and my mother had, had seven says, children. That's and, what I'm saying. And, I mean, she just 
did an amazing job. And didn't have half the things we have access right. to. Right. Right, and so no excuse. But when you really nobody talked about the depression that you feel or the how hard it is. I mean, they'll say, "Oh, you're going to be tired," and I don't know if it's even possible. Maybe it is, but to prepare people truly for what happens to your body, how your body changes, Mm -hmm. the different emotions, and all of those things, it's like I feel like we as a society need to do a better job of preparing people for what they're going to experience because it's wonderful and it is a beautiful experience. But there are things that happen at the same time. And then you talk about trauma, now have a a trauma-related birth outcome, right? Right. Have something unexpected happen at birth, either the baby in the NICU or the baby with an unexpected problem or mom with an unexpected problem or complication. Now we've got birth-related trauma. Going back to your trauma-informed care conversation, now we're scared with the next pregnancy. It's Mm -hmm. a self-perpetuating cycle. Dr. Johnson, you're the best. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. This was. was. Really, really fruitful. Absolutely. That's my bucket. Oh, I'm so thrilled. Thank you so much for coming on.